1942, as London nights were dark due to wartime blackout rules, a man walked the streets, finding victims. Known as the Blackout Ripper, he killed nearly as many as Jack the Ripper, yet few know about him. I asked the hosts of the podcast Bad Women to come on the show and tell us why. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crimelines. It is another bonus episode where I'm going to cover the basics of the case and then jump into an interview with the hosts of the long-form coverage on the topic. I am hoping going forward that I do spread these out a little bit more and not do so many in such a short period of time, but the opportunity to do all of these just fell on my desk this fall and I snatched them all up for a couple of reasons. One is that I truly love long-form podcasts. They have so much space to really spread out and get into the history and the social climate and help us really understand what happened and why it happened. Also, these people showing up in my inbox are all brilliant. They're experts in what they're doing, and I find it fascinating to talk to them. So this week, I was very excited to talk with Hallie and Alice, the brains behind the podcast Bad Women about their show, which is on season two. Season one was about Jack the Ripper, but as you can tell from the title of the podcast, it was actually about the women targeted more than about the killer. And they are back for season two to cover another case called the Blackout Ripper, which is a case I've never heard of, even though it occurred within living memory. There is a historical backdrop to this case, which is what really drew me into the podcast. It occurred during World War II in London at a time when London was dark at night. Man-made lights were extinguished and windows were covered to make it harder for bombing missions to successfully hit key targets and populated areas. With the night darker than usual, a serial killer took advantage, though it is possible he was a spree killer, killing four women and attacking two others in less than a week. On the other hand, it's also possible he had killed before this and was a serial killer who, like Ted Bundy, went on a spree before he was stopped. It started on Sunday, February 8th, 1942, when a 41-year-old pharmacist named Evelyn Hamilton arrived in London. She had lost one job due to cutbacks due to the war, and she was in London for one night while she was traveling to a new job she had found that would start the next day. But the next morning, Evelyn did not get on the train. A man walking down the street saw a flashlight on the ground outside of a street-level air raid shelter. He looked inside the shelter and found Evelyn's body in the gutter that ran through the shelter. Her clothes had been disturbed with one breast exposed and her purse had been stolen. When the purse was later found, no money was in it. It was believed she had been killed as she headed back to her boarding house for the night after having left a restaurant around midnight. The cause of death was strangulation, but there were small scratches and cuts found on her body. 
based on some evidence at the scene, including the bruising pattern on her neck, indicated that the killer was likely left-handed. The day after Evelyn Hamilton's body was found on February 10th, the body of 34-year-old Evelyn Oatley was found in her apartment, in bed, having been beaten, strangled, and then her throat cut. She had also been sexually mutilated. The killer's fingerprints were lifted from some of the items used in the mutilation. Evelyn Oatley had moved to London with the hopes of working in the theater. She worked as a nightclub hostess, but also as a sex worker. She was seen the night before her body was found at a restaurant, talking to a brown-haired man wearing a Royal Air Force uniform. A neighbor saw her with who is believed to be the same man around 11.40 p.m., entering the stairwell to her apartment. Between the fingerprints at the scene and the description of the man, the police had their first major lead in this case. The next night, on February 11th, 43-year-old Margaret Lowe was killed in her apartment. Margaret had a rocky adult life, and I discussed her a bit with the hosts of Bad Women, and you'll hear that in our interview. After her husband died, she sent her daughter to a boarding school and moved to London, finding basic accommodations that she could afford. She worked as a housekeeper before she turned to sex work. She was last seen walking down the hall towards her apartment with a man presumed to be a client. It was after 1 a.m. Margaret's body wasn't found for a couple of days after her daughter went to visit her for the weekend as she did once a month. Margaret didn't answer when she knocked, and her daughter found a package left outside her door that had been there for two days. She called the police, and they broke the door down. Margaret was found in her bed with similar injuries to what they saw at the Evelyn Oatley crime scene. They were also able to find a fingerprint on an object used by the killer, and it was noted, like in the Evelyn Oatley case, that the print indicated the killer was left-handed. On February 13th, Henri Joinet arrived home to the apartment he shared with his 32-year-old wife, Doris, and found that the bedroom door was locked. When he couldn't get a response from Doris or get the door open himself, he called the police. The constable who responded had Henri wait in the hall while he got the door open. He then found Doris's body in a similar state to the previous two victims. Also like the previous two victims, Doris was a sex worker. Doris was last seen the night before around 10.20 p.m. She was with a friend and told this friend that she was going to visit a regular client called the captain. That was Doris's usual work, her regulars, versus picking a john up off the street. But when she needed extra money, she would sometimes bend this policy. And alike with Evelyn Oatley and Margaret Lowe, the weapons used to injure and mutilate Doris were largely taken from what was already in her home. These were the four spree murders associated with the Blackout Ripper, though there were two more attacks where the women survived. One occurred on the same night of Doris's murder, and the other occurred the night after. The first attack hours before Doris was killed was on 25-year-old Catherine Mulcahy, also a sex worker, who had taken a client back to her apartment. After she partially undressed and got into bed, the man began attacking her. She fought him off, and because she was only partially undressed and still had her boots on, 
she managed to land a good kick and got away, running, screaming, to the safety of a neighbor. The man went to the neighbor and offered Catherine more money as an apology, saying that he had just had too much to drink. But she kept screaming and likely realizing she was not accepting either the money or his apology and was likely going to call the police, he ran off. However, he left his Royal Air Force belt behind. It was after this attack that this man went out and met Doris Joannet. And then the night after Doris's murder was the second surviving victim, Margaret Haywood, who also used the nickname Greta and is sometimes called Mary in the reporting. You'll see all three used. Greta had been at a restaurant waiting on her boyfriend when a man approached her and offered her some money for her company. She told him she was not that kind of woman, but the two did sit and talk for a little bit before she left the restaurant. The man walked with her as she left. As they made their way down the street, this man pushed her into a doorway and groped at her waist, trying to kiss her. He asked if she wanted to go to a nearby air raid shelter with him, and she said she didn't know of one, and she wouldn't go with him regardless. At this, the man more aggressively began grabbing at her and trying to get his hand up her skirt as Greta tried to push him away. The man then grabbed her by the throat, pinning her in the doorway, and strangled her until she blacked out. The attack was interrupted by a delivery boy who was passing by, and the man took off while this delivery boy helped Greta. The man didn't get away clear, though. He had put down his RAF gas mask in the doorway and didn't grab it when he fled in haste. This item was very telling as it had his service number written on it, and it was quickly traced to Gordon Frederick Cummins, who was just shy of his 28th birthday. After six days of attacks, he was caught the day after the last attack because of that gas mask. Cummins denied involvement in any of the crimes, but he was ultimately linked to the cases by a few pieces of evidence. One was that his fingerprints matched those left at the crime scenes. And he had also done what some serial killers do. He took trophies. Among his items was found a pen with the initials DJ in it. DJ for Doris Joannet. There were two cigarette cases found, one belonging to Margaret Lowe and another that belonged to Evelyn Oatley. The money he had left for Catherine Mulcahy before fleeing was linked to him through payroll records. Most stunning was that he was found with a photograph of Evelyn Oatley's mother that he had stolen. I know I said earlier that he might be a spree killer killing and attacking six women in as many days, but he might be a serial killer if he killed before this. And there are two cases that have been possibly linked to him. In October 1941, four months before the February killing spree, two other women were murdered. 19-year-old Maple Churchyard was killed on October 13th, and her body was found in a bombed-out building. She had been strangled by a left-handed individual, and her purse had been rifled through and items taken. On October 17th, just four days later, 48-year-old Edith Humphreys was found dead in her bed. She had been bludgeoned, strangled, and stabbed. She was still alive when she was found, barely, and died at the hospital. Gordon Cummins would become a suspect in these two murders, but never charged. Cummins continued to deny involvement in any of the attacks, claiming that bags and gas masks would be swapped between the men he served with. 
The killer was most surely in the RFA, but his stuff had gotten mixed up with Cummins' items. That's how his gas mask was found at the scene of an assault and why he ended up with a bag of items belonging to the victims. This did not sway authorities, and he was charged in all four February murders and both attacks. Cummins' wife and family stood by him as he went on trial. But he was only going on trial for one murder. The Crown chose the case that had the most circumstantial witness and forensic evidence to go first, and that was for the murder of Evelyn Oatley. It was normal in England at that time for someone charged with murdering several people to only be tried for one murder at a time. I tried to figure out when that changed by going through my knowledge of mid-20th century UK serial killers, which is admittedly limited. John Christie, who confessed to killing several people, was only tried for one of those murders in 1953. But then by the time we get to 1966 with the Moores murders, we see three murders being tried at once. So this practice seems to have changed somewhere in that time frame. The trial started on April 27, 1942, with opening statements and witness testimony. The next day, they had closing statements and jury deliberations. And the jury deliberated for just 35 minutes before returning with a verdict of guilty. This entire case, start to finish, even counting sleeping time, took less than 48 hours. Gordon Cummins was then sentenced to death, and in spite of an appeal and his family proclaiming his innocence, the sentence was carried out in June 1942. The time that elapsed from the first murder of Evelyn Hamilton to the execution of Gordon Cummins was just four months. That is a basic overview of this case and the information you need to know going into this interview with the hosts, Hallie and Alice, of the podcast Bad Women. So while you're listening to this, go find Bad Women in your podcast app and hit subscribe. You are going to want to hear much more about these women and about the historical significance of these cases. Hi, my name is Alice Fines, and I am the co-host and writer of Bad Women Season 2. And I'm Hallie Rubenholds, and I am the co-host of Bad Women Season 2, along with Alice. Being that this is Season 2, you did an entire first season. So do you want to just say what your first season is about? Well, the first season was basically based on my book, The Five, which was about the victims, uh, the five victims of Jack the Ripper. And it did a deep dive into their lives. And what we tried to do was to focus on basically their histories, much as I did in the book, to the exclusion of talking about the killer. And we expanded what we were looking at to include kind of what happened after the book came out and the response to it and and also looking at how 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 murder is looked at in in the present day and what sort of lessons we can learn from the women's experiences today in society what problems are still with us today i would just add to that through kind of building on the work of hallie's book the five we looked at how we've got the myth of jack the ripper wrong and what that reflects back to us about our culture even today why tell season two as a podcast and not 
another book or is it going to be a book and I just spoiled a surprise? No, 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 it's not. a. In fact, um, I'm writing another book right now. And uh, one of the reasons that, you know, that I really needed Alice's help and contribution was that my my attention is really divided right now because I'm focusing on another crime which I'm I'm writing about. And so this is something entirely new and it also expands kind of on what we were looking at in season 1 and it looks at women's lives. It takes it a little bit further, the same city, really the same class of woman, but it takes it into the Second World War during the Blitz. I mean there's there's a couple of different reasons that really this story lends itself well to the podcast medium, I would say. The central spine of the story is really taking place in London's West End in 1942 in World War II, which is a very visually dark a lot of the time there because London's been blacked out. But it's an incredibly sound-rich environment. So the West End is London's nightlife district, and you've got theatres, dive bars, jazz music, clubs, lots of fun, hedonism even in this time, alongside bombing, shelling, terror. And so because it's so sound rich, it it really lends itself well to world building through the sort of audio medium. And we've got a fantastic sound designer, Pascal Wise, who creates these amazing sort of immersive soundscapes that are really transporting. And they really pull you into that world and they guide you through the story. I think guiding you through the story is partly about, in that way, pulling you in, transporting you is partly about creating something compelling. But I think it also goes to the heart of the project behind Bad Women and what interests Hallie and I. And what interests us is telling the stories of the lives of these ordinary women who have kind of slipped through the cracks and who we don't tend to focus on and whose lives are extraordinary and full of rich detail, but also contain suffering and sadness and I think, and tragedy. And those can be subjects that people can want to turn away from, I think. Um, they end, you know, in terrible suffering. They're murdered in London. I don't think either of us sort of judge the impulse of wanting to turn away from that. I think we understand it. But I think what interests us is how can we invite you to walk in this person's footsteps? How can we invite you to imagine? And so creating those immersive soundscapes and transporting you into the story in that way is really part of, is, is really how we hope to do that. With season one, you had done the research for your book. And then also Jack the Ripper is one of the, you know, biggest true crime historical stories. So I imagine you had a lot of sources just right there. Did you have that with this case? Was this a case where finding the archival sources was easy? One of the nice things about moving into the 20th century is actually you have tons more archival material. And sometimes that can be almost overwhelming because you have to sift through so much stuff. And by comparison, I mean, what there was about Jack the Ripper and the victims was was minuscule in many cases in, in terms of um, the coroner's inquest, which is the one thing that actually generated documentation that historians can really draw from as opposed to newspaper sources you know, half of the, those documents are actually missing. So there's a very, very limited pool of information from which to draw. There's a little bit more to draw from the women to tell their stories. But in the case of 
the Blackout Ripper, we're talking about wartime and a lot more was documented. And we're talking about the 20th century. I mean, Alice was the one who really kind of rolled up her sleeves with this. So I'm sure you can enlighten us a little bit more about what you encountered, Alice. As Hallie said, um, there's an enormous amount of source material to draw from. I mean, we must have been, not me alone, but I work with another producer and then we've had a couple of assistants as well helping us sift through just, I think it must be thousands of pages of this material. So we're talking about police reports and then also prosecution files, court martial files. And then we've also worked with a genealogist who's helped us put together the family trees of the women whose lives we're studying. So that's been a process of looking at, of ordering and then looking at birth certificates, marriage certificates, census records, death certificates. So there's so much material and it's an incredibly rich and rewarding process to go through all of that. But it also brings its challenges and it it, it comes with a, a massive sense of responsibility, I'd say, because, you know, when you're when you're telling this in podcast format and each episode is sort of 40 minutes, there's a huge amount to distill down into that space of time. And you really want to make sure you're sort of doing right by the women whose stories you're telling. So there's quite it can be a quite a big sense of responsibility putting it all together. And it's tough. It's weird. It's, it's this weird sort of situation where you know the more you have the more difficult it is to actually tell the story because you can go down so many rabbit holes there's so many different directions you can go in that sometimes you get completely like wow this is a very interesting little side story but we don't have time to tell that so you know we have to really just focus on this aspect so that i think that was one of the challenges we faced with with this season in in particular but the stories are so rich and so fascinating and it, we use them in some ways as a way of kind of looking at the condition of women really from in the first half of the of the 20th century and what changed for women from the period of 1888 and the 19th century that the ripper victims when when they were killed and what is what has changed for women and every life is a sort of insight is a window into its own time period and that's you know kind of the stories that we're telling with this is where each one of these women were opening a window into a different time and a different set of circumstances, and we're taking our listeners there. So, you know, all sorts of unexpected things come up. Micro histories are surrounding the First World War, stories about entertainment and nightlife, stories about, you know, how people survived during the Blitz. You know, all of these things really come to life when you look at it through the lens of one individual. When you put all these episodes together, the scale and the scope of the the story becomes really quite epic because it, in addition to the kind of twists and turns that Halley's talked about around World War One and, you know, nightlife and theatre, you know, we've got one woman who says that she moved to New Zealand as a child and she spends the first part of her life there and then she, she migrates back. And so you've got that sort of early 20th century globalisation. The world is vast and yet it's also starting to become smaller and I've just been writing another episode about a woman whose parents are essentially refugees from what is now modern day Ukraine so there's this epic scale um, and sense of um, these women's stories drawing in all four corners of the world and also this sense of sort of quite cyclical return I would say sometimes Hallie do you think? Yeah, definitely about, you know, things that happen over and over again, or, you know, as you were, you were saying, you were, we were talking about the immigrant experience and how that is just such a perennial. And also, it's kind of depressing, but 
women find themselves in the same set of circumstances over and over again. And we find that, for example, if a, you know, if a man leaves a woman, the woman is really financially compromised and that really changes her life. You know, in, in the situation, well, Margaret Lowe in particular, we were just talking about her and, and how, you know, when suddenly she has to raise a child by herself and she's alone and, um, and that happens to women today. And um, women are always on the back foot when they are left. It's always women who suffer financially if a marriage breaks down or if they lose a partner. And it's these types of things that you think, my God, you know, these are patterns. You know, we, we really need to think about how we can change this in society. The, the Blackout Ripper kind of forms the central spine of the story, but we have a few tentacles off into other stories, examples of crimes against women and violence against women during World War II, and a couple of cases of intimate partner violence, where that is a very pressing issue. The need to stay bound to someone because you're sort of financially bound together. And I think we haven't totally left that behind as a culture today. So, you know, these things, not only do they recur in season one um, with Jack the Ripper and in season two of the Blackout Ripper, but also we, we still see them and we still haven't figured out how to fix these things, I think. And and I think what's what's so important, what, what Alice and I are actually saying here is that we're very interested in looking at what circumstances create a victim for a killer and all of these social circumstances that compound a society creates a victim and creates a murderer at the same time. And unless we really look at this, we're not really looking at the story of a murder in the round. We're just focusing on the killer. And I personally think this is a more enlightening, uh, a broader way of examining murders and why they happen. So Hallie and I actually approach this series from different disciplines. Hallie's a historian. And I'm first and foremost a journalist, but my educational background is in criminology. So looking at crime in terms of its social construction, the, the types of things that Hallie just described, what do we choose to criminalise and why do we criminalise it and what are the consequences? But how also as a society, as a culture, do we perhaps make victims or make certain people more vulnerable to crime? And so although we approach this subject from different disciplines, there, there's a huge overlap for us in, in looking at this subject from that point of view. With this case, I here in the U.S. have never heard of this, ever. But I have definitely heard of Jack the Ripper more times than I can count. It, I mean, there are so many podcasts and books and movies and documentaries and theories about this case. Where the Blackout Ripper seems to have virtually none, what do you think contributed to that? Jack the Ripper, unfortunately, is one of our top cultural exports in the U.K., you know, everybody knows about Jack the Ripper. People come to London and they go on Jack the Ripper tours and they go and drink Jack the Ripper themed cocktails and they go to Jack the Ripper escape rooms and all sorts of things like that. And people dress up like Jack the Ripper for Halloween. You know, of course, that's quite a, a brand identity. And unfortunately, I think it's really unfortunate that, you know, somehow the impact of what was done, the fact that we're actually talking about murders and we're not talking about somebody like Dracula or Frankenstein's monster, you know, some sort of invented creature. We're talking about a murderer and somehow the effect of that, the reality of that has been watered down because it's become something which is fun, which is why you've heard of it. It's, you know, they're cultural tropes, they're movies. There are lots of murders 
that have never been investigated that tell us a lot about the time and place in which they occurred. And this is just one of those. People in this country may be moderately familiar with this, but there are other more famous, dare I say, murders like the Yorkshire Ripper. You know, the same can be said in the United States with, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, the Manson murders. Like, we'll know about that in the UK. Some murders are more headline than others. But all of them, the study of all of them, can tell us something about a time. And their victims, I think, are a really interesting way into unpicking that time and that place. I completely agree. I would just add to that as well. I think in the case of the Blackout Ripper, one of the reasons it's it's been discussed less is because World War II sort of pulled focus from it at the time and afterwards. And also he was caught very quickly. These crimes, so he, he, as far as we know, he murdered four women and attacked two more in the space of a single week. He was caught quickly. He was hanged quickly. Jack the Ripper is still unsolved. And so that's an appealing mystery to lots of people. You know, into that void, you can project all sorts of things. It's much less compelling, I think, to have it all wrapped up so quickly. Because this happened in February and then the execution was like June. I mean, a very short amount of time. Was was there a lot of publicity on the case within that time frame? There was a lot of publicity on the case within that time frame, particularly focusing on certain kind of quite iconic aspects of the story, I suppose you might say. One of the victims, Evelyn Oatley, is very much associated with quite recognisable tags to do with sort of the glitter of and glamour of nightlife. The coverage did, in, did increase, but it really focused around these sort of particular recognisable tropes that in some ways could also insinuate that these women maybe didn't deserve to die, but certainly should have expected something terrible to happen given the time they were spending in the types of places they were spending it. As you're talking about how this area and the nightlife and what was going on there, I'm thinking of the articles that I had been reading on these individual murders where it's like, well, she was out at a restaurant doing this and she was out doing this and that. And so that that is to kind of pull from a fictional writing term, kind of a character in your story is the what's what's going on around it. And then, you know, a body being found in a air raid shelter. It's just it's very much a a picture of that time. And so I'm excited to hear that as I keep going with the episodes that they that that's a big part of it, because that's something that I really enjoy about learning about cases. I'm not really one for covering true crime cases because they're entertaining or just because like there should be something we're pulling from it. So there's something we should be learning. Maybe it's a, a legal aspect, but a lot of times it's a social one. And so I'm really interested in learning more with the history and the social ties of this case. I mean, one of the interesting aspects of, well, one of the things I find interesting because it's it's what fascinates me is as a historian approaching time periods with the intent of myth busting. So taking what we know and using archival material to actually really question whether that is an accurate representation of 
of what really happened. And the world uh, and World War II is just ripe for that sort of treatment because, you know, I can't think of a more romanticized period of time than the Second World War, and especially in the UK. I mean, we are really obsessed with the Second World War here. And this idea that this was, you know, London was, you know, the bombs were falling and there was a blackout, but people were still having this fantastic time and jitterbugging and singing in the in the air raid shelters and making great things to eat off of their rations. And, and we know that that's just complete bull. Actually, people had very difficult lives. And in the first episode, for example, we look at, you know, there's this, we have this myth of this kind of blitz spirit in the UK that people just kind of got through and everybody came together and communities came together and people supported each other. And in our opening episode, we tell the story of what happened when a nightclub was bombed in Piccadilly. And, you know, it was absolutely devastating. It was terrible. And thankfully, there was a, a nurse who was on scene and she was able to tend to some of these people. She'd been at the nightclub. But then it turned out that there were people who were just using this as an opportunity to steal things off of the corpses and off of the people who were helping, too. Uh, houses that had been bombed, bomb sites were looted regularly. There were all sorts of crimes that happened that went undetected simply because of the chaos. And I think one of the things that we want to do with this particular season is to actually show that there wasn't a time in history when we were all better people. We're human beings and we're flawed and we've always been deeply flawed. And war is no different and the Second World War was no different. So I think that's one of the fascinating aspects of this particular season. Would you agree, Alice? Yeah, absolutely. You know, certainly at school, you learn about World War Two as our finest hour and, you know, the time of this greatest generation. And I think there was a lot of bravery and there was a lot of heroism, but there was also a lot else that went on that we don't tend to talk about or tend to learn about. A lot of hardship for the people on the home front. Here in the U.S., we um, use the greatest generation, you know, to describe my grandparents' generation. My, you know, they lived through the Depression as children, and then they ended up going to war. You know, my grandfather enlisted in the Navy during World War II, and it's the greatest generation. But I think we don't always consider the fact that there were also not a lot of choices. You didn't have a choice to survive the Depression, and a lot of people didn't survive it. Yeah, And a lot of people didn't survive the war. And a lot of people came back very, very psychologically and physically disabled from the war. I think one of the things that you're telling through these stories of these women is what choices did they have? Exactly. And it's I've always found it very interesting how we often look back and to the past and we think we say things like, oh, that person was so brave, or they did this, or they stood up for that. And and you're absolutely right. In many cases, this so-called bravery is just about not having a choice and people having to do what they need to do to get by and having to face things because they don't have a choice. They have to do it. A number of the women both in our first season that who were killed by Jack the Ripper and also in the second season, they were sex workers. And of course, one of the things we look at is how is it that a woman ends up in sex work? 
obviously in the 19th century, but also in the mid-20th century during the Second World War. And also there are women who we find um, enter into sex work and then get out of sex work and then circumstances change. And because they have lived off of sex work before and they have that experience of it, it seems like a natural thing to go back to. And then they go back to it. And a lot of people didn't have choices in what they did. And it was just about making the best of a really bad situation. And I find that fascinating. I'm really looking forward for the rest of season two. Do you know if there's going to be a season three? Do you have an, your eye on any other cases? Alice? <laughs> well, there are so many different stories that Hallie and I are interested in telling. Um, so definitely keep your ears peeled for a season three, but all to be all to be confirmed. <laughs> definitely um if there is a season three reach back out i'd love to have you guys on again thank you so much for giving me some of your your evening my my morning <laughs> but i really appreciate it thank you so much thank You're you for welcome. having us charlie thank you thank you for listening you can find crime lines on facebook twitter instagram and occasionally tiktok Crime Lines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.